On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're getting back on public transport, only this time with David Diggs for the long-delayed TV adaptation of Snowpiercer. Taking the fight to the stratosphere with Steve Carell in Rip from the Headlines comedy Space Force, and we're on the hunt for a pair of killers in sexual psychological thriller We Hunt Together. All that, and Will Arnett stops by the podcast to talk about Ian Morris and Damon Beasley's new football comedy, The First Team, which we can't review this week as we're currently ahead of the embargo. And, as any football fan knows, if you play the ball when you're ahead of the embargo, it renders you in violation of the offside rule. Bit of handy football trivia for you there. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that, despite all appearances, actually does appreciate the irony of disparaging Gogglebox for being just a bunch of idiots watching television and then vomiting (laughs) stupid opinions on air with absolutely no filter. Joining me in front of the telly for this week's instalment is Terry White, who I can absolutely see appearing on an episode of Gogglebox. I like to think of her as Pilot's equivalent of Sophie from Blackpool, you know, howling in derision at her brother Pete. A character who, lest we forget, described the contestant who missed out on winning the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire jackpot as having, and I quote, worked his cock off there. Uh, Hello, Terry. How are you? James, I'm so happy because Sophie and Pete are my favourite characters on Gogglebox because they are so funny and rude and aggressively northern. They're just brilliant. I'm so happy you zeroed in on them. I did. I did. And we will get onto that in just a minute because joining us as well is a man who would fit in far more naturally on an episode of Celebrity Gogglebox, presumably nestled on the sofa somewhere between Chris Eubank and Little Mix while watching the latest episode of Naked Attraction. It's TV's Boyd Hilton. Hello. I once hosted a launch of a Chris Eubank show many years ago on Channel 5. He had a, he had a kind of docu-soap about his life, and it, was an, and it was held in a boxing ring in the Café de Paris in London, and they erected a boxing ring at great expense, and I had to interview him inside this boxing ring to Her Majesty's Press, and it was uh, an extraordinary moment in my life, yeah. Boyd, can I just say, I was really hoping you were going to say you did Chris Eubank Goes Youth Hosteling, or Youth Hosteling <laughs> with Chris Eubank, whatever it was called. Yeah, no, I didn't actually do that, but yeah, that was a classic. That was a legendary uh, format as well, yeah. Classic of the genre. Chris, hang on. Youth hosteling with Chris, you, is this a thing? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's exactly as it sounds. <laughs> it is, yeah. Sure. Of course it is. Of course it is. Which obviously segues us seamlessly into today's guest section. Terry is eating a croissant. That's not the name <laughs> of the section. That is something that I'm literally witnessing live. Terry, you are eating a croissant, not live, but recorded on air. Is this breakfast? Is this well, is this because we're recording early? Is this, this-, is, this is breakfast. I've had a fairly busy morning. I've been up since 5am. <laughs> so, um, you know, for me, it's like tea time or something. That sounds fair. But our section, in fact, is not Terry Eats a Croissant, though we may shelve that for next week. It is, in fact... The Gogglebox Challenge. So as you may recall, I was coerced last week into watching an episode of this show in exchange for forcing Terry to watch an episode of The Magnificent Sea on Apple. Now, I'm pretty sure I know who got the better end of that deal, but I'm not one to shy away from a challenge, so watch it. I did. Now, this is a show, obviously, as we have established, that instead of watching television, encourages you to do it vicariously by watching other people watch television. I didn't know quite where to start with this, so I went with Standard Gogglebox. I went with the the, the latest episode of Standard Gogglebox, where yes. I was introduced to Stephen the hairdresser from Brighton with his husband, Daniel, and their commentary <laughs> on 
current affairs. Uh, I was also, Terry, you'll be pleased to know, very uh, entertained by Sophie and Pete from Blackpool uh, and their particular their particular style of banter. Ellie and Izzy from Leeds, another favourite. But uh, really, it's when Giles and Mary turned up that I was just like, what <laughs> oh, yeah. the fuck is this show? So They're your people. just to be clear. They are not my people. Like, what? I just... I, they are I totally it, your people. <laughs> it's like the things that were coming out of his mouth. He's like, Mary, Mary, if that were an Italian Renaissance <laughs> painting, that, that hat could be a halo, Mary, couldn't it? And you're just like, who? And then they start talking about cheese, like about grating and gouda and stuff. It's like, they're these people are absolute parodies. It's just ridiculous. I don't believe they're real people. I just don't believe it. And these, so just give me some, some, some background here. So is it the same people? every week like how does this work yeah so it's it's essentially like a cast and um it's the same people every week you get to know them they occasionally introduce a new family um but they're spread all over the uk and they're kind of all different backgrounds and ages and class so mary and giles are kind of the token um posh people not necessarily rich you get the impression but that kind of old school posh um mm. and you know pete and um sophie are kind of the working class kids from blackpool um you've got the sisters you mentioned like and it's brilliant because you get to know their dynamic as a family also what they love and it's not really about what they're watching on telly it's about their incredible banter it's about the way they engage with each other and interact and it is kind of like watching i have to say in this time of being separated from people it makes me feel like i'm kind of sat at home with my family it should come as no surprise to you that initially i I hated this and wanted to kill it with fire so i I sat through their watch through of who wants to be a millionaire and now bear in mind i don't see the appeal of watching who wants to be a millionaire to begin with so that already i'm kind of off to a bad start there and i didn't really care what they were thinking about it and i didn't really know who they were and i was just like why am i this cannot be 40 something minutes long i don't think i'll survive it and then and then and then it shifted to matt hancock on this morning talking about social distancing and at that point i think the genius of this show started to be made Uh clear to me in that they're saying essentially what everyone is thinking and they're quite funny i can literally hear you crunching the cross sorry i'll stop i'll stop i'm sorry can i just ram it all in my mouth and get it over and done yes yes stuff the whole thing oh my god if i could screen grab this (laughs) what a sight terry with the cross Oh my god! Proper munching. So, so yeah. So Matt Hancock came on to this morning, and it's like listening to them trying to make sense of the drivel coming out of his mouth was just hilarious. And that I thought suddenly it became really compelling. And then it was like rubbernecking, like it was like watching a car crash in slow motion. It's awful, but weirdly compelling. And I struggled to turn it off. I and so I was a little bit drawn into it, but I, I. I thought that may not be enough. Like maybe this doesn't give me the whole Gogglebox experience. So I was like, okay, well, I'll take Boyd's suggestion now and I will try Celebrity Gogglebox. So I tried a little bit of the UK one until I realised I genuinely don't know who any of these people are. Like it was absolutely lost (laughs) to me. There was a little bit where I saw someone called Little Mix, who I'm assuming is a popular recording artist, watching Naked Attraction and her and her friends getting very worked up at the prospect of whether having kids will turn your vagina into a jam jar. This is literally a conversation they were having. And I was just like, this is okay. I maybe need a different one. So I switched to the American celebrity goggle box. 
Wow. Which had uh, the Osbournes on it, Justin Long was on it, Steve Wozniak was on it really randomly, and Rob Lowe and his two sons. Talking about murder hornets and God knows what else. And look, that, there's, that, that's a very different experience, isn't it? Because that, there's that slightly voyeuristic, I'm seeing inside their homes thing mm. and seeing what famous people do. Although, especially in the Osbournes case, in their little home cinema, it looked incredibly staged and theatrical. But... Um, I don't know. I didn't enjoy that as much, weirdly. No. I, I found I found yeah. regular it's, it's goggle box yeah. much it's, it's, more entertaining. Yeah. It's different. And yeah. as you say, it is those brilliant moments. There have been clips that have gone viral in recent weeks um, because exactly what you're saying, which is all of the kind of howls you see on Twitter and you think kind of your echo chamber, when you see these incredibly disparate families all over the country – all taking the piss out of Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson, (laughs) all taking the piss out of Stay Alert. Um, And you see kind of, they speak for the country at that point, just in an incredibly funny way. Um, And those moments are incredible. And also I think normal, proper Gogglebox um, really had some moments like in its, in its, history where they were all watching really big like moving moments of television like remember the guy who stammered Mm. on yeah Mm. on on educating yorkshire remember that guy musharraf i think it was called and he he had a stammer and there was a whole thing about him overcoming the stammer with the help of his teacher and and watching the guys the people on goldbox watching that moment became an incredible moment itself because it was like this this hugely moving thing where we all watching the same thing and we're all kind of crying and sobbing and that it was moments like that i think that really made the program as well which you don't get from the celebrity ones. It's nice when you hear, like, you know, them giving that ridiculous, yes, you can meet someone outside, but you can only meet one person outside. If you're social distancing, does it matter if you meet two people? And him not being able to explain it and then cutting to Sophie going, what a bellend! And it's just like, (laughs) there's something quite charming about that. I don't know if I could, like, watch this, you know, more or regularly, or it's not going to become a fixture of my life. But uh, I, I do, to an extent, to a limited extent, I will concede I see the appeal of this show. Um, yeah, and it does, and it's and and you get more out of it the more you watch it, and you get to know them, and you get to mm. know their relationships and their characters. Even like the Malones, the um, Manchester family of the son, the father, and the mum, and their dog called Dave has essentially become a character in his own right. <laughs> Dave is incredible, and Dave is this dog that goes crazy whenever there's another dog on the telly, and it's like they become part of like your extended family really um and i never used to watch it and i don't know why i got into it but ever since we've been in lockdown it's been the one thing i've looked forward to most every friday night maybe it is because there's no sense of togetherness i mean i hate to you know Mm. put this massive profound thing on gogglebox but (laughs) there's no sense of us being together as a people and suddenly you're watching these people going through the same things you are, watching the same things that you are, thinking the same people are bellends, and there's something incredibly comforting about it. Yeah, I, think, I agree. I think it's true. If for no other reason than I want to see how Giles and Mary's dishwasher tablet Farago unfurls over time, <laughs> I got quite drawn into that, the way she's having a massive go at him. For t- it's like, I felt it descended. Let me know run out of dishwasher tablets. And you're just like, what is happening? <laughs> Uh, your impression of him yeah. is really rather good, I have to say. I never thought any other day when James would be doing a skilled impression of people on Gogglebox. I think we've, I think we've really achieved something here. Giles, of all people. Yeah, yeah Giles. Giles. Incredible. Clearly my spirit animal. Um, so, Terry, there was, of course, another side to this particular coin, a quid to the pro quo. Um, did you watch an episode of Stephen Knight's Sea? Um, I did. 
And um, I think I recently described something as like the you most you thing ever. No, no, no. <laughs> this is the most you thing ever because it's so fucking stupid. So, okay. So here's here's my biggest question, apart from why, which is I understand that, you know, t- what, 2 million people have been wiped out by this virus and yeah. nobody now can see, right? Apart from yeah. babies, I think, who can see. Um but why does a virus and going blind mean that you no longer have like electricity and you've suddenly, when she's like giving birth in a fire lit cave, I'm like, did you also go back in time? Like there's like bits of it that just don't make any logical sense. Well, it's one of those post-apocalyptic dystopians where society has broken down and people have kind of lost away. And also because no one can see anything, they can't do any of the things they used to do. So why light it with fire then? Well, why, you know. if you're all blind, warmth, why if you lit it with fire? Apart from, you know, it's TV and you need to be able to see what's happening. I mean, I'm very glad... I'm very glad that I did not watch this when I was pregnant because (laughs) there were some pretty hairy childbirth happenings in here. Um, The battle, I have to say, in fairness... I mean, the writing is nonsense, but I have (gasps) to say... How dare you? The the battle scenes are amazing. Yes, aren't they just? I thought the battle scenes were actually like Game of Thrones level battle scenes Momoa is Momoa I mean this is like can you come on telly put on some weird fur um and be Jason Momoa basically I'm presuming is what happened um so I mean I wouldn't say I enjoyed this I mean people talk about we were talking last week about things being labeled melodramatic and soapy oh my god like some of the acting in this is amazing i don't know why he comes over the brow of the hill i mean the overacting is quite something it's deliberately affected terry it's not overacting it is masterfully executed you haven't addressed the the big issue terry of the of the show is the wanking woman woman i didn't mind that to be fair I didn't mind that. <laughs> that was probably the highlight. It was quite highlight. startling. Yes, yeah, yeah. It was, was I mean, a lot of it was quite startling, but that was the highlight. You did, I mean, you didn't arguably need it because it was so ridiculous in OTT <laughs> anyway. But, you know, God forbid that something like that would stop somebody putting something so out there on telly. I mean, look, am I ever going to watch another one? Of course I'm never going to watch another one. But, I mean, oh, if, if, if like aliens came down and said... Hey, Terry from Pilot TV, show us one thing that really speaks to the person James Dyer is, your fellow <laughs> host on the Pilot TV podcast. I would make them sit through C. <laughs> I love the I love that in your world aliens come down and they're only interested in me. That's flattering, <laughs> but it seems doubtful. <laughs> but did, were you not taken by Tamakti Jun, the Witchfinder General? <laughs> I mean, I wasn't. I mean, I've said I wasn't really taken by any of them. Although for the first time in my life, I could understand the lusting for Jason Momoa. Baba Voss. I, I, I Baba Voss, by the way, which is an amazing name. <laughs> I completely un, kind of saw it and was like, saw it. I w- I understood what people were getting at, especially when he was like chopping heads off and and stabbing people and, you know, blood on his face. I was Mm. into all of that. There's a particular episode uh, a little bit into the series where you find out quite how much of a badass he is. And it's this incredible blind fury fight sequence. It's 
amazingly choreographed. It really is. It's so, so good. It's a really good series, and we are absolutely going to review series two when it drops. There's no getting around it. Of course we are. It. Of course it's, we are. It's, it's, it's marvellous. That's going to be a long time away, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm disappointed you didn't like it, Terry, but equally, not that surprised. No. And thus ends the Gogglebox C challenge. Uh, on now to what we've been watching. Boyd, what have you been watching this week? Well... Um, I did that thing where, um, you know, sometimes you're just looking at Twitter and people are just chatting away and um, someone suggests something to watch in these times to kind of lift you, give you a lift, give you, you know, like a, a kind of um, a bit of light froth. And it was Sarah Phelps, um, friend of the podcast. Um, she just suggested, I think like earlier this week or maybe the end of last week, she said, you know, I've been watching A Touch of Cloth on um which is on skybox sets remember i banshee a touch of cloth very early on in this mm, in I this do. glorious podcast it was the um charlie brooker um wrote it with dan meyer and it start and it had uh, it's like a spoof of every crime drama you have every police procedure you've ever seen with like in that style of airplane and naked gun it completely absurd loads of sight gags loads of stupid running jokes um and uh so i watched it there's all three series are on sky and i watched and she was absolutely right it's so it's just perfect for the, it's so stupid and silly and funny um john hannah and saran jones and it just kind of does absolutely brilliantly rip the piss out of every single cliche and stereotype of crime drama in the most joyous um manner so yeah i've been watching that and the other thing i've been watching um because uh, I was interviewing Will Arnett for this podcast, which you'll hear later. I thought I should watch BoJack Horseman. I should try BoJack Horseman again because it is such a popular show. Like a, so, a lot of our <laughs> listeners, when, when we mentioned it part in the past, that we didn't really appreciate it particularly. Um, we hadn't really got into it, so I, I thought I better. I'm going to give it another go, and I just randomly picked. Well, I, I looked it online and picked some of the best episodes that people have mentioned. And on and it is brilliant, I have to say. So I am getting into Bojack Horseman. Um, it's really brilliantly written. It's an incredible look at – it kind of deals with quite serious, heavy issues of addiction um, and all this kind of stuff, but in a, in, in a brilliantly sharp, witty uh, way. And it's just an incredibly original um, – uh, excitingly different, weird, surreal world. And I think people are put off by it because you're seeing this horse character, this you know, anth anthropomorphized animals mixing with humans, and it all feels a bit like slightly um, overly quirky for the sake of it. But once you get over that, it's just a brilliantly, brilliantly done series. So yeah, I've been getting into Bojack Horseman, finally. Terry, have you been watching Bojack Horseman? I have not been watching Bojack Horseman. Um, I've been watching a few things. I watched episode six of Killing Eve. <laughs> As we all know, I am hanging in there. Um, I thought it was much better this week, actually. It, it kind of reverted more to a traditional Killing Eve episode. There still isn't, for me, in this season, enough Eve. So Sandra O. Oh, there was an episode where she wasn't in it at all that just kind of focused on Villanelle. And Jodie Comer is just exceptional. You see loads of interesting different sides to her psych psychopathy um, this season. But I'm missing the central relationship as they've kind of fractured off. Um, they, they're kind of edging around bringing them closer together. Um, but so I think it's getting better and I have high hopes for what remains. I've also been watching Life and Birth, which is this BBC um, uh, kind of, not a documentary, but it's it's not a reality show either. It's it's a bit one born every minute meets twenty four hour in twenty four hours in A and E. So it's a um set in a Birmingham hospital and it follows a 
group of couples as they have kids and it's a different set of couples each week. And I have to say, my boyfriend hates shit like this, really hates shit like this. And I insist on watching it all the time. But he found this really moving and it's BBC. It's really beautifully done, really intelligently done. Um, and I end up in floods of tears every single episode. So um, if you're feeling a bit, little bit overwrought at the moment, this is either the perfect <laughs> thing or the worst thing in the world. So you should watch it. <laughs> But what I wanted to talk about most of all was um, Southcliffe. So last week, Boyd Banshee'd Southcliffe, which was the Channel 4 drama based on... Well, it was based on the Hungerford shootings, right, Boyd? Well, I think... Ish. They, ish, but they would they would definitely say it wasn't... It, that was like a starting off point a bit, right. yeah. But more, nothing more than that, really. Yeah. So I've had this for ages on um, 4OD, been meaning to watch it and just haven't got around to it. And, oh, my God, it's absolutely remarkable and not in a way I expected. Um, so it has this kind of mad nonlinear structure, but it's really challenging. The way they've shot it, I was trying to look up the DOP because the way it's shot is incredible. I can't remember seeing TV done with this kind of deliberate, the way it's paced, the way it's edited, there's entire shots which just focus on white wallpaper while the action is happening out of the shot and they never pan to it. Some of the shots are really, really challenging. It's like an independent movie. Um, and I had a look and the cinematography was done by, Mate I'm probably saying this wrong, but Matthias Erdely. Um, it's just remarkable. It's, it, I, oh. I, honestly, I can't remember seeing something like this. And it's amazing to me that this was a kind of four-part, four-episode series because the first episode goes quite slowly and the pacing's actually really, really super slow and, and not that easy. The writing's incredible. It's really dark and murky. Like, this really, really surprised me. So if anybody kind of heard Boyd's Banshee and was in two minds – Definitely, definitely, definitely watch this. It's not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but it's so brilliantly done. Interesting. Well, I disappeared down an Apple TV hole this week. Uh, I watched all of Defending Jacob, which you two, I still don't understand why you two didn't love that show. I think it's great. And you two were very lukewarm on it. And I thought it was an incredibly addictive mystery. I really enjoyed it. So I, I binged all of that at the beginning half of this week because uh, I'd been watching them along as they've been dropping on Apple. And then it got to the point where I just couldn't wait anymore. So I went onto the, uh, the press site and watched the rest of them as well. <laughs> Weren't you look? I thought you were lukewarm on it as well. No, I liked it. I thought it was great. But I think Chris Evans is brilliant, and I think he's one of these really like he's obviously he's a very big star, but I think his acting is incredible. Like he's got this sort of really sensitive, thoughtful, you know, strength to him that he that really comes across in this. Like it's a much more thoughtful performance. I think it's the beard, honestly. I think all of his acting comes from the beard. <laughs> I think his acting just gets bumped up a whole notch whenever he has facial hair. But uh, I really like this. I think it's great. And that, that whole sort of, you go back and forth all the time. Did the kid do it? Didn't he do it? Is he a wrong and is he not? And it's really tense. Does it have a satisfying and and, you know, believable and interesting ending? It does. It's altered slightly from the novel. Um, okay. So it's unclear whether or not there will be more of this. But I think this is one of these shows where it could work and probably should work as a standalone thing. But it certainly would be possible to continue it in some fashion. Um, but 
Yeah, no, it asks an awful lot of questions, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, not like devs like determinism, but in terms of sort of genetic traits and, you know, it, it, they talk about, like, is there a murder gene and all sorts of stuff. It's it, it's good. Really, really keeps you guessing all the way through. Not by any uh, any stretch a happy-go-lucky show, but uh, but it is good. Michelle Dockery is very good in it as well. Um, but that's not the only thing I watched. The other thing I watched on Apple was... Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet, which we didn't review when it came out for reasons that escape me at the moment, because it feels like something that I, of all people, should have reviewed. But this is uh, an original comedy on Apple TV+, Plus, which takes place in the development offices of uh, Mythic Quest, which is like a World of Warcraft-esque, massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Uh, and it's they're about to launch their big expansion, Raven's Banquet. And the main first episode is basically about a shovel. But... What made what really impressed me about this is like it's really tightly written and the performances are very, very good. So this for me could have gone one of two ways. It could have been a stupid comedy that I don't enjoy. And in some ways it kind of is, but I did enjoy it because the writing and the performances are a cut above. Uh, and I think it worked very, very well. So uh, Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet, I do actually recommend, uh, even though it's a comedy. So, you know, I mean, Terry, you'd fucking hate it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it sounds you would awful. Absolutely hate it. There are orcs and goblins and all sorts of things. You would oh, not Christ. enjoy it. Um, but uh, but it is good. It is uh, it is a good show. And that actually does naturally segue quite beautifully into our listener question for this week, which comes from George at Gorge. Um, and they say, question for the podcast, with Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet doing a quarantine special, which I think came out last week, uh, what other show, new or old, would you like to see a quarantine episode of? Uh, so obviously Parks and Rec have done this, Mythic Quest have done this, a few people have done these kind of uh, social isolation special episodes. But what would you like to see? Terry, I can't even imagine what a Law & Order SVU socially distanced <laughs> isolation special would look like, but I'd be fascinated to hear what you think. Well, so first of all, um, I am going to answer this question, but I would also like to say that we don't need quarantine art. I don't I don't want to see a whole clutch of movies and TV shows about quarantine. I want to escape this daily hellscape that we currently live in. But that being said, um I think uh, ER obviously, right? I mean, ER in a time of corona would be incredible. Yeah, that's um, true. Friends like the greatest bottle episode of Friends <laughs> the, ever. The one where they couldn't go outside. The one where they couldn't go outside. <laughs> yeah. Like, what a better way to bring Friends back would be... I've, so I had an idea, which is um, they've all come back together upstate at Monica and Chandler's house for either like a funeral. Um, oh, let's say Jack died, right? So Monica's dad, Jack, died. They've all come back together for the funeral. They've all gone to stay at Monica and Chandler's house upstate. They've since moved to a bigger house than the one they left the city for. Um, they all come together and then lockdown happens and they can't leave. Um, and actually, you could do an entire season out of friends in quarantine upstate and they can't leave the house wow nbc call terry immediately and option the rights yeah. Yeah. you can have that yeah. one babes that's your real friends reunion there yeah, yeah. forget yeah. the one that's actually happening yeah <laughs> i wanted to mention that first of all by the by w1a which is one of my favorite um recent comedies of recent years have actually done one um 
Like, I think they just did mm. it like a couple of days ago and it's fucking brilliant. And that is perfect for this whole idea that because they're all, to have all of those um, spoof BBC characters having a Zoom meeting to discuss what the fuck they're going to do about the schedules in the summer when there's, when all the sport's cancelled and they're going to have to show repeats is hilarious. So, and all the core cast take part in that special. Um, and if it, you can find it on YouTube or if you go to Hugh Bonneville's Twitter or Jason Watkins' Twitter, it's there and it's absolutely brilliant. So I would have said that if they hadn't have actually done it um just now um but in the it, similarly something like the thick of it i would i think would mm. work perfectly because you could have <laughs> them satirizing the diabolical farrago that is the daily briefings the daily press briefings and you could have them having their zoom meetings deciding what to do about politically about the whole crisis and that would be fantastic and to see those and i, I think they must be thinking about it because it, you know it surely it makes so much sense for those people from mando yanucci to address what's going on in the form of the thick of it and in the form of these you know it, filmed via the zoom option and finally kirby enthusiasm do you remember at the start of the whole when the virus first started and so and um, we all started lockdown new york times did an interview with larry david and they shot him at his home from outside the the, the building and they said these brilliant long lens shots of him like mucking about in his house so they didn't break any of the rules um and he clearly him just him dealing larry david in his curb uh, persona dealing with lockdown with his family and friends would be perfect tv as far as i'm concerned yeah, I would. I would very much like to see a thick of it lockdown special. But you ask, you you say, Terry, like I don't want to see quarantine fiction. But you've got to feel like it's inevitable, isn't it? In the same way that I guess people in the Second Ooh. World War were like, I hope we don't have another forty years of fucking films and shit about this. God help I us know. all. And you know, art created during lockdown is fine, but I just don't know if I can cope with. You know, we're going to have an inevitable glut of. Um, screenplays and novels about kind of lonely married men who, you know, oh, went through an existential crisis because they were in <laughs> lockdown. And what am I doing with my life? And maybe that 20-something secretary is the salvation and the answer to my woes. <laughs> um, but I'm presuming, James, that you're going to say West Wing, surely. Well, no, actually. I, weirdly, that's the one thing I wouldn't want to see because I think, I think, like the thick of it is good because the thick of it sort of satirically lampoons something which is in itself absurd but could do a mm. good job of doing that. I think anything that showed a responsible, socially conscious, moral American leadership to this crisis would just cut so close to the bone and would be so painful to watch mm. compared to the fucking car crash that is the reality. I just don't think I could deal with it. I just think it would be so upsetting to see this alternate reality where actual decent, intelligent, well-meaning people are in charge of this crisis. And I just don't think I could deal with it. So weirdly, no, I would not like to see the West Wing do it. Things I would like to see, I mean, obviously, a Picard special where Elnor and Raffi and Seven are all talking to each other over Zoom <laughs> would be delightful. But <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking sex education, Otis's virtual sex clinic, where he's at home and people have to zoom in with their sex problems and he ends up having to watch weird sexting stuff over. I, I think there's, there's comedy gold to be mined from that. I would like to see that. <laughs> I'd also like to see a retooling of the Haunting of Hill House where everything happens over... 
<laughs> over sort of like video conferencing. Uh, whether that would be oh, more yeah. scary or less remains to be seen. The bent neck lady. It's like, I can't make you out. Oh, you got very bad network connection. What were you saying? What was that? Sorry. Uh, that would be funny. I'd like to see Viking slash The Last Kingdom with socially distanced fighting. That could be quite fun. Where they just are like <laughs> stabbing each other with spears. No, stay back. Six feet, six feet. Back, back. Um, but experience things aside, genuinely, like what made me think about this is I thought two shows in particular, Afterlife and Home, are two shows that genuinely I think could make excellent use of this particular situation i think home in particular just the the situation with sammy and i can totally see that really working like how what happens to sammy's situation when you add in the coronavirus and lockdown and quarantine and all of that like I, I, that i think is actually quite rich ground for it same with afterlife with his sort of like mental health situation and, and how he's dealing with his grief like how is that compounded by this situation which is at once tragic and also absurd which is you know, the nature of that kind of comedy. So I, I think that can work. I, I don't know, like, do we need to wait a while before we start seeing quarantine-type stuff, or will we see shows that will naturally, in the same way they'd be 9-11, sort of, like, tip their hats to it or, or incorporate it into storylines? Because it's such a seismic event in history that if you have a show that's kind of set in, in you know, contemporary times, can you, can you not acknowledge it? Does it not have to change the political landscape? Mm. And- yeah. Well... I can I can tell you, James. You'll be pleased to know that Emmerdale um, is <laughs> has resumed has resumed filming, and they are doing special episodes that do deal with their ongoing characters and how they're dealing with um, the virus. So there you go. That's that is um, they're breaking new ground there. Well, it's handled I mean, then. No one else needs what, to do it. Emmerdale's got it covered, guys. That's it. We're yeah. done. Isn't it also one way to kind of make a virtue of the um, insanity, which must be trying to get actors to do social distancing during a production, which is you kind of don't have to explain it if they're doing social distancing because they're doing social distancing in the show. Yeah, that's true. Too many social distancing. In fact, we had Jason Isaacs on the Empire podcast that that came out on Friday, and uh, he was talking a lot about this, about how, you know, the logistics of it massively pushes the budget up on on film and Mm. TV shows because when you've got to incorporate social distancing, that's problematic not least of all you've got to shoot in countries which are allowing you to shoot as well uh but it was interesting we had yes we had uh jason on on empire who's very very good we talked about the west wing we talked about his appearance on highlander the series <laughs> don't miss that he got his head cut off spoiler uh and and we talked about hashtag save the oa uh and whether or not we'll ever see the oa again um i sadly think probably not but uh he did he did confirm that the conspiracy theory that people have been pointing around that uh, actually they have shot the oa and this whole thing is a big ruse to sort of in keeping with the oa mythology sadly that is wishful thinking did you did you ask him the one question that needs to be asked which is did they did the creators of the oa talk him through their whole conception of you know the five seasons that it would have been like, does he know where it goes? Uh, oh, that's a good. Well, he said he said they've got it all planned out, and he said they talked to him about it. I can't remember whether he said they talked to him through all five seasons. He did describe the moment when they sat him down and talked him through the finale of season two, uh, which kind of blew his mind. Obviously, oh um, great. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's oh, such an incredible TV show that. Okay, fine. Well, that is our um, quarantine edition of the listener question. Uh, we hope that was helpful. If you would like your question answered, do chuck it over to us. You can either DM it to us at Pilot TV Mag on Twitter or feel free to hurl it at me directly at James C. Dyer on or around Wednesday, <laughs> which is when I'll be looking for one. Mm-hmm. Before 
We get on to news. It is time for this week's guest. Coming from the same creative force that brought us the in-betweeners, the first team follows three young up-and-comers at an ailing premiership football club, with Will Arnett on fine form as the club's unpredictable American owner. Now, Will dialed in from, I have to say, an impressively well-equipped recording booth that he has installed in his own home, the very same booth from which Bojack Horseman springs forth. Uh, So he called into the show and he talked to Boyd about Brit comedy, the horse himself and why everyone should be watching Narcos Mexico. Hello uh, and welcome to Will Arnott. Thanks Will for joining uh, the Pilot TV podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for saying my name the, the actually the correct way. Oh, what do people call you? Arnett. Oh, everybody okay. calls me Arnett, but but it's actually Arnett. <laughs> Good to know. You see, mm. I, I think I've watched a few interviews in the build. I think it's sunk in the right way to pronounce it. Um, I have to ask how you're doing in these times of lockdown. Is California, you're speaking from, from LA, I guess. Yeah. And is California still locked down pretty much? Are you still? California is pretty much still locked down. Um, some things have started to open up, um, but uh, for the most part, still locked down, still homeschooling. Um, that it, it, I imagine if you interviewed any of my former teachers, and you, the idea that I would be homeschooling would make them laugh so hard they'd tumble over. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So we're here and we're 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 safe uh, for the most part, and everybody's healthy, and that's that's all that matters. Good. Yeah, that's all that matters. Yeah. Now um, we've got you on to talk about your role in the new BBC comedy, um, The First Team, mm. which is a show about Premier League football. Um, in in and it's created by. Ian Morris and Damon Beasley. And I, I spoke to them. Um, well, I actually went to see them when they were in the edit for the show. And they were very excited at having you on board. And they said that they bamboozled you into being. <laughs> that was the word they used, into that, being in this show. Does it feel that, like that way from your point of view? How did you end up in their show? Bamboozled. <laughs> That's exactly how I ended. No, you know, I, I'm such a fan of of those guys and uh, of Ian and Damon's. And we got to know each other and we we – for years swore that we would work together um, and we'd, we'd laugh and we had things come together and fall apart, whatever, over the years. But we and finally Damon, um, but we got to know each other a little bit. And then Damon sent me this script of their script last year and just said, look, we've got this thing. It's a, a, a comedy set in the world of Premier League football um, and we'd love you to come do it. And uh, and I said, without having read it, I said, you've ruined my plans for the fall because obviously I'm going to want to do it. And it's really irresponsible of me to say yes before I read it. But basically this is a soft yes. Um, and then of course I read it that day and just loved it and said, yes, 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 yes. And just, I felt so lucky. I'm so excited to be part of something with them. Uh, they're such funny writers, such funny guys. And, um, what was also gratifying is, is it felt like the beginning of a of a great uh, partnership with them. And, you know, we're now talking about other stuff uh, actively, especially in this time of stuff and ideas that we're working on together, and which is I'm just really, really excited about. And your character is the, he's the chairman of the of the football club. He's yeah. an American. Um, there are similarities to very uh, ver- Americans do own various Premier League. In fact, my team Arsenal is owned by Americans. What's, um, and what's the chairman's name of that team? Yeah, Cronky Stan Cronky and his son. In fact, John. as you do in the show, r- runs the club. 
Um, now, oh, is that no kidding? Yeah. So the chairman of Arsenal is the American guy, um, Josh. Stankle you didn't say it. Yeah, Josh um, is his son. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Listen, that's a coincidence, and that's a comparison <laughs> that you've made, and I will not comment on that. <laughs> did you know much about the world of football? Did you, I know you're a big sports fan, you're a big yeah. hockey fan, etc. Did you did you know much about football? Yes, I I, I got uh, really introduced to. I was always a sort of a fan, just peripherally of of European football and, and, and English Premier League football. And it wasn't until about five six years ago that my that my writing partner Mark Chapel. Um, you know, with whom I created Flaked, and we've written a bunch of stuff together now. He brought me into the Premier League. Well, really, all of European football, but he's a lifelong uh, Liverpool supporter. Um, and once he started explaining to me the ins and outs and really the stories behind the football and who this player was and who he came when, who this manager was and why he left and all that kind of stuff that starts to fill out the the picture um, that's where I really get interested in all of it. I love the human drama of sport. And and then I just became a Liverpool supporter right as they were on the precipice of this great ascent that they've been on, which has been rudely interrupted by this yeah. nasty fucking virus. Um, but, you know, so, I, so I've been a fan for the last – and I watch religiously. I watch – Virtually every Liverpool game, whether it's a Premier League game on the weekends or it's Champions League and, and uh, through all the stages. Um, and I'm a big, yeah, I'm a big fan. And I was also aware, one of the storylines I love or I find really funny and interesting is this, is the advent of the American chairman um, or foreign chairman. You've had, you know, from all over the globe, whether it's Russia or wherever, but America certainly is kind of American buyers have entered into the fray and having these American chairmen chairpersons has been super funny to me because they dry they they draw they really draw the ire of the of the uh UK football supporters in such a um hilariously passionate way um and I get it uh you know but they are super easy targets and they all a lot of them seem to keep stumbling into it and stumbling through it and the fans get so are so angry with them with the exception really of my good friend Tom Werner who's the chairman of Liverpool who's a excellent guy um and I feel like Liverpool fans are lucky to he's a he's a genuinely cool guy um yeah and he's th- a guy who who he's a he's a veteran Comedy producer, TV comedy, veteran. Roseanne, et cetera, yeah. Yo, uh, yeah, I mean, everything. It was that 70s show, Roseanne, um, you know, you name it, he he did it. And, you know, he and I made two films that he produced uh, years ago, um, Let's Go to Prison and Brother Solomon, both of it, which were not huge box office successes, but, but good little films. And so I, I've known Tom for a number of years. And that was, he was the other piece of this. When, when Damon and Ian brought me on, they said, oh, and we're, you know, and then Tom reached out to me and said, I'm ex- executive producing it with these guys. And I was like, yeah, I'm in. And Tom's, he's just such an easygoing sort of self-effacing dude who understood what makes this funny and this world cool and was so helpful in the process. And, and you know, of course, can open so many doors in the football world. Um, but just such a cool guy, not precious about himself ever. Um so yeah, it's, it's just been it's been such a kind of amazingly organic process uh, with these dudes. 
And and your character is that there is a fair amount of satirical, um, uh, st- on the American, the idea of the American. Hundred percent. Doesn't know that much about. <laughs> doesn't football. know that much. No, his family buys this team. They evidently don't, don't know that much about it. They stick their son, um, who's kind of a pretty cold, sort of heartless guy, on it, kind of clueless, and but also just quite uh, ruthless, um, in a very pedestrian way. His ruthlessness is not sort of uh, founded in any kind of like inherent evil. It's just the way he is. He's just ruthless. Okay, well, you did that, then you're going to go. Uh, well, you're yeah. of no value to me, so um, I'm going to get rid of you. Yeah, there's an excellent scene in the first episode where he realizes he's signed this young American guy who's not even an, Amer- an international player, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and he tries to erase his signature. On the- now, that, 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 why I thought that was such a great moment was that you do this little, little physical gesture with your finger on your lip, which yeah. goes on for quite a long time, and then you try and erase the signature. Now, was that in the script, or was that a little bit of uh, yeah, it was real in- addition? Well, it was in the script that he tries to erase. He tries to erase the. Um- the signature off the the contract. The, the, I mean, you know, from his point of view, from from Mark Crane's p- point of view, he's really excited to get this what he thinks is an international American international on the team. Get him signed. There it is. Gonna, and as the kid signs, reveals that he's not this star player. And if and it occurs to him, Jesus, if I just if the kid had signed. Ten seconds later, I would have he would have not been able to sign if I'd just known this ten seconds anyway, so and there's that moment of like, what can I is it possible that I could erase it while he's looking at him and he's trying to think like is he going I don't want to give it away, but maybe he won't notice, and maybe I'm invisible, and just if I just slowly and what was great was Ian and Damon kind of as a bit, I thought, how slowly could I do this? And how much of a pause could I take? And what was great was that, you know, uh, that, you know, that Jake was like right across from me and he could see how long I was taking and he started to crack up and I had to kind of hold up because he almost got me going. And I just thought, I'm going to make this as long as possible. So I did and made it as slow as possible. We did it a few times. And after the first time, it was so long and (laughs) I kind of said, and then we, we they yelled cut, and we started laughing. And I said, "I'm really sorry that I I, <laughs> I took it too far." And Ian said, "There is no length of time for this that is too long for me. Right? Please take as long the longer the better." And I was like, "Great, yeah, great." It, it, the length was was beautiful, um, so to speak. Um, <laughs> and is it much different for you? you? You've been in some the, some of the greatest um, U.S. comedies. Ever Arrested Development, Thirty Rock, um, BoJack Horseman, obviously animated. But is it much different doing this British show, this British sitcom, to to your American experiences? I mean, not not really. I, I kind of did a, a hybrid uh, British show when I did Todd Margaret with David Cross years ago, um, and you know, which was David writing, but with British with Mark Chappell, who's since become my writing partner, but. Uh, so I got to kind of experience that, kind of ease my way into uh, the British comedy experience. Um, but at the end of the day, not that really not that different. You know, the goal is still the same to, you know, always, you know, create as funny a scene as possible and, and t- tell the story in a funny way and and really just be sensitive to the material. You know, trust that these guys are 
writing great scenes and and trying to do right by them and trying to kind of help them realize their goal and just be a team player. And, and for me, it's always, I really enjoy um, working in, in comedy, especially in, in television comedy. I find it to be really quite a fun process because it's quite quick, uh, which I enjoy. Um, making comedy films sometimes just, uh, I haven't made that many. I don't really, but, but the ones that I have made, some have been good. Some have been not great, but it's a much tougher, slower process. And I don't know, TV comedy is pretty much the same everywhere. Everybody's just trying to have a laugh and like, Hey, did we get a funny version of the scene? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, were you a fan of, you said you knew, got to know Damon and his work. Were you a fan? Are you a fan of British comedy in general? You were like, yeah. like an Anglophile. Yeah. What kind yeah, of yeah. stuff? Um, uh, like- man, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm a fan of all the, you know, um, those guys, Edgar Wright and those guys, you know, I was a fan of spaced, um, and that's how, and, and all their films are Simon and Nick and, and, uh, Pete Serafin, which is an old friend of mine that he was kind of one of those guys who introduced me to a lot of people in a lot of those comedies years ago. Um, and you know, whether it's, uh, the office, the original office and, and, um, you know, big fan of Ricky's who's also since become a, a close friend and, and, um, just to, you know, I've had the, um, I've had a lot of teachers, people who have, you know, who are, great performers who have turned me on to other great shows. Um, the list is really endless. Um, you know, I feel like if I call one out, I got to call them all, <laughs> sure. all out. I mean, you, the mighty boosh. I mean, I don't know. You tell me where to start yeah, and where yeah. to no, stop. That's, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good list. Yeah. yeah. I want to mention one British guy, David Baddiel. Um, he tweeted only last night, late last night about Bojack Horseman. Hmm. And he said, the episode of Bojack Horseman, when his mother's story is told through her fractured dementia memories, is as powerful as any drama I've ever seen. The storytelling across the series is so much better than most live action shows. Um, and he then says um, that animation is one of the highest forms of TV and highest art forms of TV and film. Uh, what what do you think about that? Well, I mean that's um, that's uh, uh, yeah, nice to hear. It's high praise. Um, he's a I don't really know him. He and I are sort of Twitter friends, um, and we've talked about BoJack, and I um, I appreciate his his you know his his wit and uh, his intellect, and and uh, it's nice to hear that he. You know, I think that. Certainly, Bojack Horseman. Um, I would hold that, even though it's animated, and, he, and kind of to David's point, you could hold it up to any TV drama or any TV comedy or any film or anything. It is just a. I think it's a brilliant piece of art that Raphael has created. He's created these very specific, defined characters who are really rich. Their stories are very compelling and and sad and funny. Um, it, every one of them have all those elements and then the way that he weaves the story together, weaves these characters together and tells this longer story about this person who's really struggling with mental health and depression and what that does to somebody um, and what impact that has on the people around them and um, what it, what it means to grow up in an alcoholic home um, and what it means to grow up with, with that kind of emotional neglect um, you know, and, and what, what kind of person that can produce and what kind of effect it can have by proxy on other people. I, you know, incredible. And, 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 you know, I think there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, I don't want to watch that stupid, uh, cartoon. And I think, well, okay. 
Um, too bad for you, and because to David's point, it, there is a lot going on, um, and I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of writers who look at what Raphael has done and 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 think like, "Wow, that's I wish I could do that." Not easy. Absolutely. What he's done. Yeah. When you when you were first approached to do Bojack Horseman, did you have any sense of that? I mean, it's become one of the most acclaimed shows of all time, practically. That the, the if you look at the ratings of it, you know, in terms of people's responses to it, it's pretty incredible. Did you ever? Did you think it could become that show? No. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I, of course, with hindsight, like, oh yeah, I could always see the signs of it. But the truth is, when we the first the first episode, the pilot that we we, we made a pilot presentation that was a sort of a, a shorter version of the the actual pilot itself. It was very funny. The script was undeniably funny. You know, you read a lot of things, and that was one of those. I read it and immediately said. Um, I want to be part of it. You know, Raphael and I share the same manager. So that's how I kind of came into it um, via that way. And, and I felt really lucky that I got to read it and, and, and um, that he asked me to be a part of it. I think that, you know, as the show started, I knew that it wasn't just a kind of a send up of, of Hollywood and, and, and an inside, inside showbiz show. I knew that he was aiming a little bit higher, but it took a second. Um, but you could feel just in that there's that first scene where Bojack is in the bar and he's encountered by these these fans and then he ends up having a sort of a drunken encounter with these girls back. You got a sense pretty early on that this is someone who's really desperate, who's really lonely, who's really sad, and that it it wasn't just about, you know, the trials and tribulations of a washed up actor, um, that there was more more to it. Did I see it going this way? No. I mean, it's been super gratifying that people can appreciate the show um, the way that they do. Um, but we're still kind of, I, I still feel like we're kind of the underdog. You know, we, we got nominated for an Emmy last year, but we've, we've never won any Emmys. Uh, we won a few Annies now, which have been good and, and critics choice. But when it comes to the Emmys definitely haven't have been, um, um, I don't want to say overlooked, but just haven't been in contention in in that way, which is, which is okay. You know, we didn't. None of us made it so that we could win Emmys. We just made the show. Sure, sure. Um, and finally, in 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 this lockdown period, in between homeschooling and all of that, and and, and being a father, etc., have you had time to to binge watch anything that you, new for you? Have you kind of enjoyed anything in this period that you might not have got to watch otherwise? Uh, there have been a, yeah, there have been a few things that I've binge watched. Um, I watched uh, all of the latest season of Narcos Mexico, which I really enjoyed. Um, and um, I think that that guy Scoot uh, McNair. I don't know him. Um, I saw him on a plane once, but I was too nervous to say hi to him uh, about six months ago. Um, I thought he, I just think he's just one of the great performers uh, right now. Just again, kind of under the radar, underappreciated, fantastic performer. Um, and um, I've wa I watched that uh, Amazon show, the Zero 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 about the international drug trade. I guess I, I watched a lot of shows about the international drug trade. <laughs> Fair enough. Because um, <laughs> I felt like it was something I needed to be kept up on. Um, and I watched this over here we had, I think maybe you have it on Netflix over there, this uh, Michael Jordan documentary, oh, yeah. the, the Last Dance, yeah. which I found to be incredibly inspiring. Um, and I think a lot of people were thinking, th there's been a lot of like, seems like Michael Jordan's an a-hole and stuff. And I thought like, eh, I don't know. He was doing pretty extraordinary things. It probably took a lot of uh, 
concentration, a lot of, um, and I love the idea. The thing that I've been, like really jamming on in the last couple of days is this idea that somebody described him as saying he might not have been the necessarily the highest jumping guy or the fastest runner or the bet whatever, but there never has there ever been anybody more in the moment than Michael Jordan. And I'm like, that's what I want. I want to be considered. I want to, when they look back to say that dude was in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's it's a phenomenal, phenomenal series. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. And Will, thank you so much for joining us um, on the podcast. And congratulations on your role in the first team. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Will Arnott. And time now for this week's news. And there can only be one thing to talk about this week, Terry. And it is that all of Buffy has come to E4. How do you feel has about it? this? Yes. Oh, yes. Well, um- uh, as you can tell by my high-pitched scream, <laughs> do you know how much money I've paid on Buffy over the years? Like paying to, paying to rent over and over again. I, I recently, God, only about eight weeks ago, um, when all this started, um, bought all of season two and three on Amazon. Well, oh dear. now you don't need to yeah. because it's More all on e Yeah. That's so, also, yeah, so it's on all four. Yeah, it's on all four from uh, Monday week, and they're screening it on E4 starting that night. Season one, the first season, um, <gasps> like nightly, yeah, as well. So you can watch it kind of live um, if you oh, want. Oh, let's do yeah. that. Yeah. Let's do it together. A watch along, a live Buffy watch along. Uh, That's not the only thing as well, because I got lots and lots of people contact me on social media this week to tell me that Sky had put Banshee on the homepage of Sky Box Uh Set. I can only assume as a tacit reference to this very podcast, and lots of people are giving Banshee a go for the first time. If you do have access to Sky, go on to Sky Box Sets now. Well, not now, but when you finish the podcast. And, uh, And watch Banshee, because it is there in full, and it is glorious yeah i got tagged on instagram twitter like i think somebody wrote me a letter about it like there's been a a lot of getting informed about banshee this week (laughs) yeah a lot of screen grabs of that homepage was sent love love banshee um breeders got renewed for a second series so favorite that's a thing that happened but what right too what quite right to yes indeed boy oh actually you know what um, so when we recorded last week's podcast a piece of news broke i think the same day that we recorded last week and it was mm. that star trek strange new worlds is officially going into production oh, yeah. which is the discovery spin-off where anson mount will be reprising his role as christopher pike uh rebecca remain will be coming back as number one and ethan peck as spock that is pretty exciting so it's the you know the pre-kirk adventures of the starship enterprise all based on the fact that anson mount was so fucking good in that role um a huge fan of his. I think he's brilliant, as I've said many times in Hell on Wheels. But uh, he was great, and I really, really loved that. And th- I think this is a, this is. I'm so pleased that they've greened at this. Like this is like a golden age of Star Trek now. Like they're not only are they the series after series coming, but they're giving us really great, well thought out series, which all have a slightly different flavor and a slightly different tone. Not in the same way that you know maybe they've approached Star Trek in the past. So I'm 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 pretty psyched about this, to be honest. T- Terry, did you you watched? Yeah, you probably didn't see any of Pike in the Discovery because you only saw the first episode of Discovery season two, didn't you, when we reviewed it? Yes. Who? What? <laughs> Terry has no <laughs> recollection whatsoever. Fair enough. Boy, did you watch all the Discovery? 
Yes. Yes, it was brilliant. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah. You're a, were you a fan of Pike? Yeah, he's great. CBS, this is like CBS, what's it called? All Access? Yes. The streaming service, yes. isn't it? So they're like, it's become the Star Trek service, it has. hasn't it? It's my favourite thing in the world. It's incredible. It's, they always just call it the fucking Star Trek network. <laughs> but fair enough. I mean, if you're going to find ways of milking it, at least they're... At least, yeah, I agree. They're doing things that, that fans really, really have crave. Like, mm. yeah, it's definitely something that, that I think they'd be really excited about. And it has a real, uh, there's a distancing here, which is good as well. Now that Discovery has kind of catapulted itself into the future in a different timeline, it actually gives this this series sort of room to breathe without overlapping any of the other stuff. The only problem mm. it has is it takes place in a timeline that's kind of canonical, so I guess it limits what they can and can't do. But nevertheless, I think this is great. They were really, really good characters. I think uh, Ethan Peck was great as Spock. So yeah, big, big big fan of this very excited star trek strange new worlds coming to this world at some point in the not too distant future um i also wanted to talk about um something that happened after we recorded the podcast last week james i know um uh you recorded a a bit of audio for this on last week's pod but we didn't get Mm. a chance to talk about it properly which was the really sad news about the death of Lynn Shelton, who obviously directed Little Flowers Everywhere, which we reviewed last week and is on telly right now. Um, but it's all was also just a brilliant and beautiful independent filmmaker. Um, Hump Day, Laggies, Our Sister Sister, um, has been doing telly since I think 2009 and has done, you know, Mad Men, New Girl, um, The Good Place, Glow, which she worked on obviously with um, Mark Maron, who was her partner. Mm. And it was kind of... Um, it was actually really beautiful to see kind of the outpouring of of grief and sadness, but also how loved she was um, within TV and film. You know, a lot of people talked about how she mentored them, a lot of up-and-coming young female filmmakers especially, about how she supported them. Um, uh, yeah, she was 54 and it was an undiagnosed um, blood disorder, I think. So just, just really, really tragic news last week. Yeah, have you listened to the... Um- the Mark Maron podcast, podcast with, yeah. Yeah, with it, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, was incredible. I'm not sure quite how I segue from that into Timothy Oliphant's character on The Mandalorian, but I'm going to give it a go. Uh, so, Timothy Oliphant's character on The Mandalorian has been announced. He will be wearing Boba Fett's armor, but but not playing Boba Fett. So, Tamara Morrison, I believe, is still is still being Boba Fett, but uh, but yeah, he's going to be playing Cobb Vanth, who's a character who appeared in one of Chuck Wendig's books, uh, and he is a sheriff on the Tatooine-based settlement of Freetown and bought his Boba Fett armor from some Jawas, obviously. So there you go, Timothy Oliphant in The Mandalorian. <laughs> the Mandalorian season two, shaped like Katie Sackhoff, you know, Rosario Dawson, Timothy Oliphant. I mean, I'm pretty fucking psyched for Mandalorian season two. It's 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 shaping up very, very well. Big fan of Oliphant. I was a big fan of his in uh, Justified as well. That was a show that I liked a lot. So uh, interested to see what he does there. Now, I know we're not massive CW Arrowverse fans on this particular podcast. Not that we hate it, just because we don't watch it. But um, I was quite surprised to see Ruby Rose. I don't know if you noticed, this has exited Batwoman. And she's not given a reason. But obviously, this is deeply unusual for someone Mm. after the first season to just bow out of the role. Now, she was injured during the first season quite badly. um, But it is, you know, it's certainly been said that that was not the reason why. So presumably classic creative differences or something. But you've got to imagine that she was under some kind of contract to do a second season. So to bow out of it, presumably she'd have had to have broken that contract in some way. I am speculating. I don't know. And I'm, you know, not privy to the legal ins and outs. But this is quite a big thing. I was surprised. And, and, you know, the the showrunners had spoken when they kind of cast her about 
um, why she was perfect for it and, mm. and why it was important they felt to have um, uh, somebody who was LGBTQ plus mm. um, play that role. And there seemed to be a real kind of synergy between them as as um, as the lead and as filmmakers in terms of what they wanted to do with that character and how they wanted to represent her. Um, and obviously season two is happening just with, somebody else so it was really surprising and as you say no real details given um i think it was indicated that it was her decision but as you Mm. say if she was contractually obliged then that would have had to have been something they kind of all agreed with but yeah i'm sure we'll i'm sure we'll undoubtedly learn more over the over the coming months but um but yeah and was she well received as that did, did the fans I would love like to say I knew. I genuinely mm. don't know. I am. It is one of my big blind spots. Uh, is the Arrowverse mainly because there's so much of it, but uh, so I have absolutely no idea. But um, I certainly don't recall there being any sort of huge outcry of hatred over her portrayal in the role. So I don't think that that would have been the reason for it. But who knows? Who knows? As you say, we'll probably find out in time. But uh, watch out for who will be replacing Ruby Rose in Batwoman for season two. Um, did you see Vanity Fair around a big piece on The Stand? Did you see this? So mm. they had some exclusive pictures of cast members in The Stand, the new miniseries based on the Stephen King novel, which is an incredible novel. And I'm a big fan of the old 90s. Is it 90s or 80s? I think it's 90s uh, TV series. But uh, this one, you know, we our first look at Whoopi Goldberg as Mother Abigail is in here. Uh, Alexander Skarsgård as... Uh, Randall Flag. It's uh yeah, it's look I mean it looks amazing, doesn't it? It's a big budget, it's a lavish production, it's an incredible epic story. I mean, it's a little on the nose for the current uh post-apocalyptic virus situation, uh given that the whole world gets wiped out by Captain Trips. But uh yeah, and a lot to love here. Dessa Young pictures of her in here as well. Um if you haven't seen it, maybe go and have a look. But I'm I'm very psyched to see this. This is one of the TV things I'm most looking forward to. So Boyd, are you a Stephen King fan? I am a Stephen King fan, and I also remember watching the original version of The Stand and being really um, and, and really loving it. Yeah, so yeah, I'm excited about this. What, what channel is it going to be on? You asked an excellent question. I wish uh. I knew off the top of my head. It is on CBS All Access in the States, but what is it over here? Uh, I don't know. So yeah, it's appearing on the Star Trek channel in, uh, in the States. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that channel. Talking of channels... I wanted to mention how um, the BBC put out this report talking about, um, you know, the big decisions it's got to make and basically confirming that they're thinking of bringing BBC Three back as a channel. Mm. So, of course, famously, you know, a few years ago, it became an online thing because the theory was from the BBC that the youth didn't want to watch uh, TV anymore like the oldsters do you know kind of all communally and they just wanted to watch stuff in their own time on their phones and stuff but of course since then BBC Three has created and commissioned some of the best stuff from Fleabag to normal people to people just do nothing the young offenders this country all of these classic classic shows are BBC Three branded and commissioned shows um, Killing Eve so that was a BBC Three show of course Um so now the now the BBC is going. Oh, actually, maybe let's start a channel and double its budget again. And I think quite right. I was I thought it, I never understood why they got rid of it as a channel anyway. Um, so they think of doing that, and and controversially, that is also alluding to the fact that people think they're going to scrap BBC Four. Yeah. And so we're in this weird, interesting position where do they kind of go for the youth and give the youth what they want, and seemingly ignore the channel that is for older people and deals with the arts, and you know is kind of slightly more, um, uh, you know, has slightly more niche 
um, interests. And I think this is a, it's a really interesting dilemma. It's a really interesting kind of moment as to which way they go. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the BBC Three thing always confused me because BBC Three always had great shows that were, yeah. as far as I could see, commercially successful. And... You know, the way they started to chop new shows up. So I was trying to watch some documentary about um, sex workers living on the streets and it was chopped up into like weird, tiny chunks and I couldn't, you couldn't really get into anything and, you, and or it was just like the worst viewing experience ever. So it makes total sense, but I kind of, I'd hate it for, for it to be at BBC Four's expense because I think it's such a rich channel that does so much but it is funny how everyone thinks they have to choose kind of one or the other do you know what i mean you can have the kids yeah, or yeah. you can have the middle-aged people yeah. but you can't have both <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and to be fair like a lot of the bbc4 stuff um bbc2 i think is getting better there's i, I i'm noticing a lot of stuff that would normally be on bbc4 is actually being shown on bbc2 now so i'm wondering whether they are actually getting ready to kind of turn that into a i don't know archive only service or something like that well, I think you alluded to it earlier, James, but um, obviously there has kind of been approval given for um, TV shows and films and productions to get back up and running again, um, in so much as, you know, as restrictions have loosened around workplaces, the Department of Culture and Media have said, you know, if, if they can be done while um, social distancing is observed, which is leading to all sorts of interesting conversations, because how do you make a production with people two meters apart you know how does it work with boom operators mm. or how does it work with grips or you know when you think about what goes into making a tv show never mind the actors who presumably can't stand within two feet of each other um it's going to be a really interesting time for how we can actually create compelling tv in that time and whether it as you say references it or doesn't reference it and how they get through um, those complications, they're talking about kind of more effects, more green screen potentially and less practical. What impact will that have going forward on the way TV shows are being made? Um, I think it's going to be a, it's still a really challenging few months, but hopefully some of our, our favourite shows can get back in production. But what they'll look like and how they'll do it, I think is anyone's guess at this point. More importantly, did you see the story about Robert Sheehan's pubes being CGI'd out of the Umbrella Academy? <laughs> What? <laughs> no, but I now yeah. want to hear this. What is this? Yeah. yeah. Well, Robert Sheehan. Well, first of all, Netflix confirmed the uh, season two of the Umbrella Academy is going to be um, end of July, I believe. Um, yeah, so that's July 31. And he was on some podcast and um, probably a really good podcast. Sorry, I didn't mean to be dismissive. But he told the story <laughs> about how he was um, how he uh, he was talking about how unruly his hair was becoming in lockdown and he told the story of how for some reason his pubes kind of sneaked out into a shot in the season one of the of the umbrella academy and some poor cgi operative some some fvfx guy just had had to cgi them out for some reason i don't know why pubes are considered something more offensive than non-pubes in that region but apparently they are and apparently that's what happened so yeah wow there you go I mean, Fascinating. I'm not sure if that's better or worse than the quarantine video they did announcing season two while all dancing to no. Tiffany's I Think We're Alone Now. But, uh, you know, yeah. sounds good. Yeah. And also Netflix. Now, did you see they announced season two of The Politician? It's coming quite soon, June 19th. So we'll be reviewing that mm. in, a, in a couple of weeks. I, I was not, I have to say, I was not expecting season two of The Politician, Ryan Murphy's show to arrive this quickly. Um, but, but I quite like season one and season two has got Bette Midler in it extensively. Mm. So I'm quite excited about the whole thing. 
That is it, I think, for news. So time now to move on to this week's reviews. And we begin with Greg Daniels and Steve Carell's Space Force, a show that took the absurd idea of Donald Trump deciding to militarize space and ran with it, although which has turned out to be more absurd is probably up for debate. Uh, this not only sees Carell leading the charge to put boots on the moon, but also features the final on-screen performance of Fred Willard, who died sadly last week. Uh, Boyd, is Space Force a super duper missile or a load of kafefe <laughs> very good um i so i interviewed greg daniels the uh, co-creator he co-created this um with uh, steve carell and we reviewed greg daniels's Greg daniels's um amazon prime show a couple of weeks ago which by the way i also keep getting people getting in touch with me saying um it gets better and better and we should kind of go back to it and carry on watching it because it was because we were unfair huh. about the whole thing i mean well, I we will went at some unfair. Point. We just didn't like no, it. No, no, I'm fair. No, people are people are saying we should have. People are saying we should have watched more than the first one or two, and that then you know it gets better. But this is upload. This is the exactly yeah upload yeah. Um, so there's that. So he was doing that show, which is this big CGI fest um, kind of science fiction comedy, and also at the same time creating Space Force, which came from an idea when Steve Carell thought, well, this is so this actually exists. This American military part of the military, which uh, Donald Trump's um, regime created to put boots on the moon as soon as possible in a kind of to fight the Russians and the Chinese to get that kind of real estate of the moon. I mean, the whole thing is fucking crazy, but it's actually happening. And when I interviewed Greg Daniels for Pilot TV magazine, he talked about how the tone that he was going for was kind of Dr. Strangelove, the Stanley Kubrick film, a kind of quite heightened, semi-satirical, kind of quite visually ambitious cinematic style mixed with a bit of it's a mad, 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 mad world, which is this kind of classic... Well, classic, this star-studded, um, widescreen, ludicrous film that came out many decades ago about loads of famous people. Every, everyone in it is a famous actor, and they're all competing in this ludicrous race. And bearing that in mind, that is what the show is like. It's, it's a good description of the tone of the show, which is quite kind of um, very heightened, quite silly. It gives um, Steve Carell the chance to do kind of set piece comedy moments. There's one bit where he sings a song <laughs> when he's trying to kind of psych himself up, uh, which I thought was very funny. And if you go with that tone, I really enjoyed it. So I really enjoy, I, I love Steve Carell. John Malkovich is in it is this kind of like nemesis scientist who is butting up against, but actually they're kind of like buddies. And there's a lovely scene at the end of, I think the second episode where they're sitting on the, on the porch, on the stoop talking about um, what, what's just happened with their space launch Ben Schwartz is in it Noah Emmerich's in it Fred Willard is in it and that moment when Fred Willard arrived I found quite sad and moving because um, he look, he doesn't look great in it obviously he's, you know, he's an old guy and he's, he's, he's ill Lisa Kudrow's in it incredible cast I think it's fun I, th I, I think it looks incredible I think it's beautifully filmed um, the first episode is directed by Paul King of um, Paddington Films fame and I think he's done a brilliant job so I I'm really enjoying it. And I've watched all the whole thing, all 10 episodes. And I think it gets better and better. The more you get to know the characters, his daughter is brilliantly, is a, is a really good character. And I'm really enjoying the whole vibe of it. Yeah. I read something really interesting about this, right? I think it was in Variety and they were speaking to um, Greg Daniels. And what he was saying is that Netflix actually kind of took this to Steve Carell and, and as an idea, and then he developed it and he brought in Greg Daniels because the research team at Netflix, Net, Netflix, the research <laughs> team at Netflix had discovered that their audience liked workplace comedies and quirky characters. 
Um, and that kind of stuck in my head the way it came about, which I suppose is is not relevant in some respects, but it kind of almost is because there was something almost um, researched about it, kind of this formula that had been come up with um, that had been given to the creatives rather than vice versa. And it it does feel a little, do you know what it does? It doesn't feel that innovative weirdly to me or that interesting in terms of its format or what it's doing and the the challenging thing is I think when you have this kind of satirical thing which is based on this mad thing happening with Donald Trump in the real world and this real space forces real life is so crazy and stupid and something you couldn't write because it would seem too ridiculous that then kind of it's really hard for a satire to really lampoon that because it's it's almost kind of like documentary in a way. So I think when when you're what's happening in the real world is so absurd and so ridiculous, it takes some of the bite out of this. Now I, I agree with you; it looked really great. Um, Carell's always amazing. The supporting cast is ridiculous. Kudrow's incredible in everything. I just think she's like everything she's doing, she just gets better and better. Um, I thought it was kind of gently, mildly funny, um, but it kind of, it didn't really grab me and it didn't feel like it was doing anything particularly exciting or new or that I hadn't seen or or kind of skewering what was happening in the real world enough for me to be really compelled by it. Yeah, I mean, the main <laughs> thing you have to bear in mind here is this is just not really my kind of show. Uh, it's it's <laughs> partly because it's end. a comedy. Yeah, I mean, that's really all there is. All I can really say, I didn't enjoy it, but I think in this case, the fault is mine. Like, I, I recognise that it's, you know, it's well made. It's, it's just sort of Dr. Strangelove meets the American office. Uh, and it does into it. I do agree with you that I think the, the satirical aspects of it suffer from the fact that the reality of this is more absurd than the absurdist satire of it. Like when Donald yeah. Trump unveiled the Space Force flag in the Oval Office and it looks like the Starfleet insignia and then started talking <laughs> about the super duper missile. I'm like, this is naked gun. We are in the naked gun. Like I've turned, this is absolutely insane. I'm in some Zucker Abrams comedy. And so then when you try and satirize that with something that on its face isn't quite as absurd, it it's just yeah. puts you in a slightly weird situation. I was just going to say that interestingly, they, they- they play, are playing down quite a lot the satirical element of it, and and every time because I every time I mentioned satire when I was talking to Rick Dennis, he was like, yeah, yeah, but not. I don't think they're even they were even going for that particularly. And I know it like obviously it's set in this world of Trump, and they don't never mention by name, but there are there no. are little allusions to yeah. him. But uh, they, they so they the, but the but aiming for satire wasn't particularly what they were going for, which I think is interesting because it is more of a, it is exactly that a workplace comedy, yeah. Mm. Mm. Much more, they're going for that, and it's got it's got great people in it. I think really that's this this show's main strength is it has very good comedic actors working on it, and I think they carry it very well. Uh, did it make me laugh? No, but then that's not really saying very much, is it? Uh, I certainly think if people are fans of Carell's work, and I think most people are, there's a lot to enjoy here. So, yes, indeed, Space Force. Then Friday, Netflix, twenty ninth of May. Speaking of Netflix, next up, 
we have Netflix's Snowpiercer, arguably the most delayed train in the history of public transportation. Uh, this one originally springs from an 80s French graphic novel, Le Transpersonage, or something that doesn't butcher the French accent quite so much, and was adapted for the screen as a movie in 2013 by uh, Parasite director Bong Joon-ho. So that film was famously not released in the UK, so for years you could only watch it by importing dodgy DVDs from overseas, although it did arrive on Netflix last year, finally. Also arriving on Netflix is the similarly delayed TV adaptation. So this departs from both the kind of allegorical class struggle of the film and the story of the graphic novel to take a more straightforward approach. It's more of a whodunit in, in certain ways. Uh, and this has been in development for years and has seen delays, uh, fallings out among the producers, people walking out due to creative differences more delays, threatened network changes. I mean, there has been a lot going on here. However, much like the Thameslink service from Bedford to Brighton, years of waiting did eventually see the thing <laughs> arrive. But the question is, was it worth the wait or should we have sacked the whole thing off and just taken the bus? Terry. <laughs> so I'm calling this CSI Parasite or Law and Order Snowpiercer, um, one or the other. <laughs> and as you say, that's the big difference with this. So anyone who's seen Snowpiercer, which I absolutely love, um, and is very Bong Joon-ho in terms of, as like Parasite, very um, interested in class and capitalism and structural, struct, blah, 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 structural inequality. Um, and the kind of basic narrative framework is the same as um, the film and as the graphic novel, which is this this um, story of there being an, an alternate reality earth where global warming got completely out of control, um, scientists intervened and accidentally um, caused an ice age. And so to survive this, people got on this train, this massive train, I think they say there's 1,001 um, carriages mm. and it circles the earth um, permanently and you have first class at the front and it goes all the way back to what they call tailies who are essentially people who jumped on the train as it was leaving um got on without a ticket and have been fighting for survival ever since and there's a first class there's a third class i have to say first class is all kind of like sushi and fine wines and third class looks like a right laugh there's like rave ups it's like i want to be in third class um but the, the big change, as you say, is there's kind of now a, a procedural in the middle of it. We should say the train is, is run by this and owned by this reclusive tycoon who's called Mr. Wilford. And he's this kind of shadowy figure um, who kind of holds all their fates in his hands. Now, this police procedural thing has actually caused a lot of um, disagreement, I should say. I've read some of the reviews for this elsewhere, and it's really kind of split people who I think are comparing it directly to the film. Um, and for me, I have to say, I really liked the police procedural element. You'll be very surprised to hear. Um, and that's because I reckon the film was so tight and taut and focused. You had this really kind of narrow focus and it was completely consumed with with a class and, and the differences between these people and, and, you know, it as a wider allegory. But I think when you're making a TV show, and this is what 10 parts, it has to take a wider, a slightly wider approach. There has to be different pacing because it's a different medium. So there's this propulsion in this film, this constantly charging forward motion that I think some people have missed in the TV show. 
But I enjoy it because I think if you're going to make 10 hours of telly and it shouldn't just feel like a film, it should feel like 10 distinct episodes of television, then it needs a slightly different pacing. It needs a slightly different feel. Um, I think David Diggs is a great who plays Andre Layton, who is this former homicide detective who essentially is, is the heart of the story. He gets taken out of being a tailly at the back to investigate a death on board. Um, and it's this kind of central mystery that propels you along through the episodes. But I have to say, Jennifer Connolly, who plays Melanie Cavill, who's essentially the voice of the train, she's a hospitality manager. Um, she is incredible. Like, I can't remember the last thing she did that was as kind of compelling as this. She is given so much to do. She's absolutely brilliant. And she would never have been in my mind to play this role had had she not, had I not seen this. But she is absolutely remarkable. I think she's absolutely brilliant in this. And the other standout performance is Alison Wright, who plays her kind of second in command. She is like like, dark and twisted (laughs) and like a complete bitch and just. Well, she's the Tilda Swinton, isn't she? She is. She is the Tilda Swinton, but but plays it, I think, kind of completely differently and and in a really interesting way. Um, So I really liked this. I watched four episodes last night. I couldn't stop watching it. Um, And I really enjoyed it. It's quite. It's really dark in places. Um, some of the violence is is quite hard to watch in places. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I really loved it. I really loved this. And I think I can kind of see why some of the criticisms, if you constantly compare it to the film, but I think you have to take this on its own terms as a TV show. Um, and I think it's brilliant. And I'm going to watch all the rest of it this weekend. Yeah, I, I had an epiphany um, whilst watching this because... Um I watched the first two episodes uh, uh, a few days ago, and I enjoyed. And I thought it was fine, but I kept. I did keep obsessing about the film, and I think. And I was like, "Well, the film was so focused and claustrophobic, mm. and so um, brilliantly relentless in its kind of Marxist class class, you know, warfare um, theme." I mean, it's it starts. The film starts at the rear of the train with all the people who've got there who climbed aboard the train in desperation to survive and slowly walks you through the the thousand apartments if you like through the classes and you don't see the first class um bit of the train until quite late on in the film and it's very very as you'd expect from from um, Bong Joon-ho it's it's uncompromising mm. in 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 that form and it's Brilliant, and all, for all those reasons, it's absolutely brilliant. And the premise, of course, going back to the to the graphic novel, is extru- is brilliant. I mean, what an incredible idea of the train going round and round the world relentlessly, divided into these classes. It's just a brilliant concept. And I kept while I was watching this TV version. I I, I think Terry's absolutely right. I was like, well, it's not the film, and it kept annoying me. And then I watched three and four last night, and I actually. I did completely then forget about the fucking film and just focus on the fact that actually if you ca- if the film did not exist and you came to this TV show using that premise and it isn't as claustrophobic and it can't be as claustrophobic because it's fucking 10 hours of this thing and there's going to be season two as well, then I agree that actually the, the, the whodunit element with Davy Diggs, who is really great and charismatic, what it just makes it more of a, of a um, interesting, grossing, watchable thing. 
And it's different and it's not as uncompromising as the film and it's not claustrophobic like that. And some of the scenes, like there's a there's a nightclub scene, I think, in episode two, um, which is just could be a nightclub anyway, you know, in Soho rather than on board the train. And they're not really focusing on emphasising the claustrophobia of the situation. And they can't because it would be almost unwatchable, unbearable, wouldn't it, as a viewer? So I think actually... Despite all the machinations and the and the showrunners have left, Scott Derrickson originally directed it, and you know all all everything that people know about the history of this show. In the end, kind of the creative decisions they've made, it makes sense. And I and I totally agree about Jennifer Connelly. She, I've always loved her. She's fucking brilliant in everything, but she has done some dodgy things <laughs> in her time. This is a great role for her, and I love the fact that she's kind of everything, isn't it? She's like the PR woman. She's yeah. the, she's making the whole thing work. And there's a brilliant bit where you finally see her at night, where she sells down. And she's still doing like running the. She's running everything, and I love that. And she's so great um, that actually it's kind of almost worth watching it for her alone. But additionally, it is a really I am really enjoying it and will carry on and willingly consume all 10 episodes, yeah. Yeah, see, I'm surprised, Terry, that you like this. I really didn't expect you to. So this is a... Uh, so I, I enjoyed this. I, I I think it's good. I don't think it's great. Um, I do think, as you say, the film is a very, very taut, very specific allegorical beast. And I think what this is, this is less quirky and surreal than the film, but also it's it's less bleak than the film, but also more serious than the film. So the film is someone it's really hard to watch. It's very bleak. Yeah. It's incredibly dark, but it has uh, Bong Joon-ho's sort of slightly whimsical, surreal sense of humour in there, which lightens it. This is very fucking po-faced. Like, there is no attempt at humour or levity in this. Like, it's really quite... It takes itself very seriously. And that's honestly how I quite like my science fiction, so I have no problem with that. I think what makes it stand out from a lot of sort of daft post-apocalypse sci-fi is money. Uh, I think you can feel that this is not a cheap series. They did not skimp on this. Like, they've they've gone to town with the sets and they're not messing about with it. And and they've made some logistical kind of quality of life changes. Like, in the original graphic novel, the train is a thousand and one cars long. I don't think anyone's pretending that's how long it is in the film. Otherwise, the film would be a lot longer than it was because they literally start at the end and end up <laughs> at the front and the whole fucking thing is yeah. supposed to be 10 miles of train. Um, but, uh, and you know, in this one, they say there's 3,000 people on it. So there's a lot going on uh, and as you mentioned Terry it's a bit like Downton Abbey up the front and then it's sort of a bit sort of like that living in sort of squalor and steerage uh, at the back and all the different stages in between there's a, there's a, there's a the night car there's the, the brakeman there are all these different sort of groups and factions and things going on so it's actually quite a rich mythology from which to mine a series and I think they, they did a good job there I also liked Ruth Terry who was I think their nod to Tilda yes. Swinton's sort of like brash Yorkshire character who comes down to dish out justice yeah. but it does it, it is quite hard to watch at times. Like they, they have a, a sort of a strict sort of punishment thing, which they take from the film, where they freeze people's arms off as punishment, like sticking their arms out the train, uh, which is quite nasty. But um, this is a strange one because they've taken this idea. So this is not the story of the graphic novel, and it's definitely not the story of the film. And they've essentially just adapted the setting, the world of Snowpiercer, to turn it into, on the face of it, an investigative crime drama, uh, which feels a little bit odd, but it does evolve beyond that. So I watch all 10 episodes of this. So I have, I've seen how, and it does, the show does evolve into something slightly different as the series goes on, and it becomes more about, if not class, than about equality and democracy and people's unwillingness 
unwillingness to live by old rules and how how you know sort of social mores and and class struggles persist even beyond the end of humanity uh, and how everyone likes to have their place and how order trumps justice in these things but um i i think david diggs helps carry he's very charismatic in the role as leighton and and how the how he yep. builds alliances and how the dynamics of the train evolve as the series goes on is interesting and how the series ends as well is very interesting as uh, how it sets itself up for for the second season um and i did enjoy the fact that it does a slight rug pull at the end of the first episode uh which is an interesting move and a stark contrast from the film as well and that kind of paves the way for for everything that comes afterwards so there's lots of there's lots of stuff to like here it's not a subtle show it's not a particularly layered show i don't know you know it's not it's not going to tax the old gray map. it's not devs is what i'm saying but it's fun you know and if you if you like a bit of you know post-apocalyptic sci-fi drama i think it, it does have lots to recommend it so i i think this is good uh it won't go on my all-time classic list but i did watch 10 hours of it and i don't regret it so <laughs> i guess that's an endorsement i was just gonna say i appreciate you know i know exactly what you're saying but i really appreciated the fact that they made it for tv do you know mm. what i mean because there's been talk of this and there's talk of parasite and i was thinking these films are in many respects many respects perfect and they're just immaculate films and and how and why would you make them into tv and what i enjoyed about the way they've pushed it to be more tv and probably you know pissing off loads of um, cinephiles i think there'll probably be a bit of snobbery around this which is you know why have you sullied it by putting in this this Mm. police procedural and it's not as pure as the film but i think they've shown real respect for the medium which is how do we create compelling tv that sustains itself over 10 episodes. And also I think they've unashamedly want people to watch it. So it's broader in many respects than the film. And that's kind of what this bigger um, tapestry of characters and this bigger world gives you is the ability to, I think, appeal to a bigger audience. And the fact that they've worked really hard to make it more appropriate Mm. for TV I think is is something to be admired and respected because they haven't just gone, let's stretch out the film essentially Which would have been over disastrous. multiple episodes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree. And I think the first few episodes are directed by um, James Hawes, who's a really good British director. He did, he's done Doctor Who, he's done Penny Dreadful, mm. two really brilliant episodes of Black Mirror. And I think he really knows what he's doing. I think that was a good move to bring someone mm. in who absolutely can make really good TV. He absolutely, he's excellent at this stuff. So I think, yeah, that makes sense. And also, it's because they have to move around. Like the, the film has a very distinct A to B mechanic. They start at the back, they go to the front, they move in one direction, and it's this inexorable march towards the engine. Whereas this, they have to keep pinging around the train and it's supposed to be 10 miles long. I, I quite like the fact that they've, they've made a distinct effort to try and get through it. So they have this fast transit system which is like a train within a train. So you go under the floors, so there's like a little shuttle service you can get to go up and down the train. I thought, well, that actually made me happy because it would have bothered me. I said, yeah, I'm just going to pop to the back of the train. It's like, really? It's a thousand and one garages. It will take you a week. <laughs> <laughs> None of us have that kind of time. So I'm glad that they that they sorted that out. But um, yeah, I, like I said, and I think Diggs had his his work cut out for him doing this because you know I talked about Chris Evans earlier in, in defending Jacob, but his performance in the film it's a powerhouse performance. There's one yeah. particular scene where he sits down and delivers an incredibly moving monologue, which is just brutal and unflinching. Uh, and I, I I think it was such a tragedy that that film spent so long in limbo. It was Weinstein Company that sat on it, refused to release it in the UK. And as I recall, Harvey Weinstein had a big old set to with Bong Joon-ho about the film because he wanted 20 minutes cut out of it. And Bong was like, fuck Correct. you, or the Korean equivalent of... Um, 
<laughs> and fair play to him. But uh, we can see it now. It is, uh, it is. The film is now available on Netflix as well. And I believe, boy, the Blu-ray and the DVD come out this month for the very first time in the UK. Yeah, weirdly, um, well, the Blu-ray and DVD come out for the first time officially in the UK the same day, uh, today, in fact, Monday, as the show arrives on Netflix, which, by the way, so they're showing the first two episodes on Netflix on Monday, um, and the DVD Blu-ray is out today as well, and then it's going to be weekly because it's showing weekly in, in the American network. It's an acquisition from, by Netflix. Yeah, it's TNT, isn't it? Um, from the network mm. showing it in America. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Uh, worth your time, I would say, worth your time. Snowpiercer mm. arriving on Netflix on Monday, the 25th of may uh and if you want to do a massive marathon by all means watch the film and then the series and do it all at once and then read the graphic novel fuck it in for a penny in for a pound james i am enjoying the fact that you went it's good but it's not great and i watched all 10 episodes in one go <laughs> 10 hours of telly that was good but not great i know to be fair though that I, and i didn't just watch 10 because i'd never seen the film so i literally sat down on monday i watched the film and then on tuesday through to today i watched every episode of the series wow oh my god fucking hell so, so i've had a very snow pierce a week i bet you have Finally this week, we have We Hunt Together, a UK TV original that sees Eve Miles and Babu Cisse on the hunt for a young couple who also happen to be murdering psychopaths. And to tell you about that one, our very own forensic psychologist, Dr. Boyd Hilton, will lend his expertise. Won't you, Boyd? I will. Um, this is quite an interesting, unusual um, format for this show. So it's created by um, Gabby Hull, who um, wrote Cheat, which was a quite a very popular ITV psychological thriller um, I think came out last year Gabby is a dude by the way not a woman I mean I'll just mention that in passing because a lot of people I think assume that Gabby is, is a woman um, and this series as you say you've got a detective duo played by the great Eve Miles and I love Eve Miles um, and um, Baby Cissé who I also love and they're kind of a classic mismatch detective duo he comes in as her new boss he's come from um, internal affairs if you like he's come from like line of duty style world and obviously she's slightly resentful of him there's all that they have to kind of get to know each other and, and they definitely are very contrasting personalities he's weirdly kind of um, jolly almost for a detective investigating um, hideously brutal murders. She's quite intense and we're kind of slowly that we'll, we'll look, we'll see more of their backstories. And at the same time, running parallel to their investigation is the crime itself committed by another duo who kind of, and it's, it's a kind of mirroring thing going on where, you know, we see them and they have similarities in many ways to the detective duo. Um, and the, the psychopath duo are played by Hermione Caulfield and um, Dippo Ola. And they end up killing, it's not a spoiler because it happens very early on in the episode, they end up killing um, Nigel Harmon in very strange, peculiar circumstances. So the format of the show, the premise of the show is, so it's not a whodunit because we see them do it quite early on. It's, so it's a kind of about why are they doing it? Why do these these people kind of meet each other and fall for each other and then seem to develop this relationship through psychopathy and murder and are the detectives what what's wrong what's up with the detectives you know what's their backstories are they going to are they going to get together and you know are they going to kind of work professionally together how are they going to solve this crime so it's an interesting unusual take on the police procedure on the psychological thriller I would say it's like semi-successful. I thought it was interesting visually. A lot of it's like kind of like very kind of deep blues and reds and there's a kind of almost like a kind of colour scheme thing going on. It's well filmed and I like everyone in it. It's just slightly sometimes like I, I felt like some of the characterization was just odd and slightly goofy and weird and didn't and I didn't quite buy it. Um 
and I felt it, I felt like it was slightly like I'm not sure. I think I would have been more compelled if it had been a who done it. I know that's like an obvious thing to say, but I'm not sure if this murderous duo are interesting enough to keep me glued for the, the for the rest of the story, um, even though it is weird and unusual and quite kind of off kilter in a way. So I'm kind of like I'm not quite exactly sure what I feel about this so far. Um, having I've only seen the first episode. I'll probably watch the second episode, but I'm, I'm kind of, I'm slightly losing whether I'll carry on watching the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with Boyd, which is, it look, it does look fantastic, I have to say. Um, and I think this, is this the second original script to crime drama for Alibi Boyd after Traces? Yeah. Um, yeah. You can tell they're kind of, you know, they, they want to be quite bold and ambitious. Um, and it does look fantastic. Eve Miles, I completely agree. I am obsessed with. Um, I think she's absolutely brilliant. She was obviously in Broadchurch um, and did Keeping Faith, which was the um, show that was in Welsh language and in English language, um, did fantastically well for the BBC. I think she is so compelling as an actress. But I agree with you on some of the characterization. So um, Babu Cisse's character, as you say, a little bit goofy, um, something about the way that was played didn't quite sit. And I understand that they were trying to create a contrast between these two detectives. One's super cynical, one isn't, one's kind of quite hardened. Um, but it was done in quite a heavy-handed way, which which means they both kind of fell into these types quite quickly, and they're types you've seen before. So when it comes to the other couple, the criminal couples, so you've got Baba and Freddie, Deepo Ola is, I think, fantastic. And I have to say, Hermione Caulfield, who we've seen do kind of minor things, she had a, a, a kind of minor role in Last Jedi, I think. Um, she is absolutely magnetic. So when she first, there's a, there's a scene where she first comes on screen um, and she's in the bathroom and she kind of has this, unspoken dialogue these kind of exchanges these looks um with baba and it's she is absolutely magnetic there's something really compelling about her i just think she was incredible actually but i'm with you in that it kind of worked in some respects they were quite a compelling couple their chemistry was quite interesting the whole setup was quite interesting that it isn't a um procedural in terms of you as you say you know exactly who's done it you know the setup and it's kind of these two these two different couples one being hunted um and how that kind of resolves itself so i'm with you i don't know if i'll keep watching i'll probably give it another episode but i kind of appreciate the fact that they are trying to do something different and quite interesting um and yeah, I, I mean, I watch pretty much anything with Eve Miles in it because I think she's fantastic, but it, it's it's kind of hit and miss in places, this one. I have not seen this, so I cannot comment because I had to watch 10 hours of Snowpiercer. You would not like this. Yes, I, I, I didn't imagine <laughs> that I would, so I will just take your particular word for that one. But this this is on Alibi uh, on Wednesday, 27th of May and starts at 10 p.m. Uh, also out this week 
is the first team, which airs on BBC Two on Thursday the 28th at 9.30pm, which we will be talking about next week. Uh, Boydie, anything else this week of excitement, of note? Oh, you know what I would mention, actually, is, you know, Hannah Gadsby, the um, stand-up, hmm. um, she did this brilliant show called Nanette, which is like this groundbreaking thing about, you know, the whole idea of doing stand-up as um, a feminist woman and uh, kind of dealing with all her issues, getting her issues out via stand She's got a new stand-up show on Netflix starting tomorrow on Tuesday, the 26th, 26th called Douglas, which I think is going to be brilliant. So, yeah, that's the only other thing I would mention. And do we have a pick of the week? Snowpiercer. Yeah, I would agree with that, Snowpiercer. And as would I. Okay, good. We're all about the Snowpiercer (laughs) this week. Right, before we head off, we have time for the Banshee segment, which, because I don't mention it enough, is so named after the show Banshee, which you can see on Sky Box Sets because it's on their homepage. (laughs) This is a section where we take an old classic show and big it up for your contemporary enjoyment. Boyd, would you like to take this week's first? Um, well, inspired by the first team, which we we, we couldn't review because of the because of the embargo, but we did speak to Will Arnett. Um, I was thinking about another show. So the first team is very much about Premier League football, about kind of the, the, the top of the game. But there was a series called Rovers, which was on Sky One in 2016. It only ran for one season. And it was about a lower league team. And it was about the supporters of a lower league football team in the Midlands. It was created by Joe Wilkinson of um, Afterlife fame who is a brilliantly um, maverick, eccentric, comedic force. He wrote it with David Earle, who's also in Afterlife, and he's another brilliant maverick, creative comedy force. And it was directed by Craig Cash of the Royal Family fame. And um, the cast for this show was brilliant. So it was all set around the kind of the bar and the back. So you don't see the football. It's all about the kind of how the supporters of this kind of lowly, terrible, uh, kind of, you know, unsuccessful football team gather. So it's really a device. The football element is just a device to bring kind of a group of misfits together who have a shared interest. And it was a really lovely, funny, different kind of celebration of working class people getting together and gathering a bit like the royal family and a bit like craig cash's stuff um but the cast get this cast sue johnston back with craig cash for the first time since the royal family lolly adafope um steve spears who's always fun everything jamie dimitriou of staff let's flats um joe wilkinson himself david earl diane morgan the brilliant diane morgan who's great in everything it was just a great cast all playing really interesting vivid uh, well-drawn believable yet funny characters so that was um rovers on sky one and it is on sky box sets on demand or whatever you can watch it because i checked so yeah i really like that show Rovers indeed. Terry, what have you got that's, you know, football related? <laughs> um, I'm going to Banshee Undercover Heart, um, which was a BBC show starring two of our favourites, Lenny James and Daniela Nardini, who we know better as Anna from This Life, um, who have the best chemistry ever, unsurprisingly, as they're both incredibly sexy people. Um, and it... Essentially, the premise is there's an undercover police officer. Um, he's investigating the murder of a prostitute um, and he goes missing. And therefore, his disappearance is investigated by his best friend, who is Lenny James, and his missus, who is Danielle Nardini. Um, they end up kind of having or, or getting... Well, I don't know. Is that a spoiler? No. Um, they basically, as they go along, end up kind of falling for each other um it was created by peter boker who did world on fire most recently directed by john strickland who did bodies there was only ever one series of it and i can't remember 
why because i really enjoyed this um boy do you know why it was cancelled i think it just didn't get high enough ratings yeah um at the time and but it was really good i remember it being really good it was yeah. also produced by jane fallon um of, oh, yes. of yeah 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 um, what's wrong with people i know it was yeah incredible cost Stephen mackintosh um yeah uh, yeah it was great it was really good I mean, all the ingredients are there. And um, yeah. if you did not see that first time around, uh, all of season one is on BritBox. I am going to hook my banshee on Terry watching C. If only because Jason Momoa, who is, of course, most famous for playing Khal Drogo in Game of Thrones, first came to my attention when he appeared in the TV show Stargate Atlantis. But that's not where I'm going to start. So I'm going to start with the Stargate legacy on television. So everyone remembers Roland Emmerich's film Stargate with um, Jay Davidson and Kurt Russell and James Spader. But this got converted into a TV show in 1997, a TV show called Stargate SG-1, which filmed in Vancouver. And Roland Emmerich, who I'm assuming signed the rights away, uh, did not massively appreciate this i know this because i was on set of 2012 and we were um i did an interview with him in the production office which is where sg1 filmed or had filmed it had finished i think by that point and he was quite vocal in his like what the fuck is stargate sg1 um but it was an interesting idea so it took the idea that you get from the film where they discover in egypt and giza they discover this gate and they the gate enables them to travel to another world where they encounter aliens, all this stuff sort of happens. So they turn that into a kind of sci-fi procedural whereby SG-1, which was the name of the the group, this sort of little sort of crack squad, which would go through the gate. Uh, each week they'd go through the gate to a different set of coordinates. So they'd go to a different planet and encounter different aliens. And there was an ongoing thing where the same aliens from the film were there. They called them the Goa Old, and they were they expanded the mythology. So it was a little snake thing in, in people's heads. Anyway, basically so lots of different Egyptian gods with their little Egyptian guards ended up going to war with them but what made this work was MacGyver himself Richard Dean Anderson played Colonel O'Neill in this so he was uh, the one played by Kurt Squarejaw Russell in the film but he brought with this a really nice sardonic sense of humour like a real sense of comic relief to it and it really makes this series work so you've got him wisecracking you've got Michael Shanks playing the James Spader role as kind of a scientist Amanda Tapping was in this as, uh, as Major Samantha Carter another member of the team and then Christopher Judge who is the the man mountain Christopher Judge, who is the voice of Kratos in the most recent God of War game, he was the kind of straight man, the kind of spotlight, took everything very literally, a little bit Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. And again, between him and Anderson, both very, very funny. So this was a really kind of bubbly, enjoyable show. And yes, it hasn't aged well. And yes, the effects are kind of terrible, but it ran for literally 10 years years 10 years even after anderson and tapping left the show uh, at which point and this is the best part of this to replace them they tried to harness the sheer bottled lightning sexual chemistry of farscape by bringing mm. ben browder and claudia black on as the two leads of this show so they replaced uh, they replaced them and and they became the leads in this as well after farscape had been and been cancelled so that was loads of fun as well though and much as it wounds me to say it because i love both of them it was better when richard Anderson was in it. But so this was Stargate SG-1. Now, Stargate SG-1 has had two spin-off shows. So Stargate Atlantis started started in 2004. And Stargate Atlantis took place on Atlantis, which is on another planet. And they'd got there through a Stargate with a whole different team. And this one had Jason Momoa in it. This is where you first met Jason Momoa. They encounter him on the expedition. And he becomes a series regular on this. Um, and then there was another third spin-off for this, which I think only ran for one season, which was Stargate Universe. And that had Robert Carlyle on, in it. And that just took place on a 
spaceship traveling through space. And that was a much darker, much more thoughtful sort of... Uh, I enjoyed that a lot. I, I think it had real potential. That only lasted one season got cancelled, which was a real shame, because actually I think Carlisle was really kind of moody and sinister in it, and it, it, it had a lot going for it. It's a very different tone to the others. It wasn't quite as playful, it wasn't quite as fun, uh, but it was pretty good anyway. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan of Stargate HG1. I have watched Stargate Atlantis, and I thought Stargate Universe was great. So if you are of a mind to watch some low-budget aging sci-fi and you enjoy the Roland Emmerich movie, then, you know, dig out the many Stargate possible series that are available out there. Stargate is not streaming anywhere, but it is available on DVD or was available on DVD, so I'm sure you can pick it up secondhand for peanuts if you so choose. And that was the Banshee segment. And that is it for another episode of the Pilot TV Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We are 87 episodes in now, and if you haven't picked up on this so far, I am never going to stop harassing you to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating until every single one of you has done it. So why not save us all some time and go and do that right now? The podcast is, as of this week, also available on YouTube if you prefer to consume your podcast there as well. So feel free to head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe, Pilot TV Mag. Uh, and Terry Boyd and myself are all on social media to field your queries and comments at Terry underscore White, at Boyd Hilton, and at James C. Dyer. Now, if you will excuse me, I am going to go and record a podcast where we listen to random members of the public as they listen to this podcast. I'm calling it <laughs> Bell and Box. <laughs> <laughs> Pilot out. <laughs>